If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. I'm Kristen Roberts, Washington editor for the 30 news organizations all around America that together make McClatchy. Every week we call the reporters and operatives who live and work in political battleground states and ask them to tell us how voters are reacting to Donald Trump and Republican Washington and what issues Americans outside the Beltway are thinking about that D.C. still is not. We're doing something special this episode. While Alex Rorty and Andrea Drush are taking a break, Daniel Malloy from Aussie and I sat down with Republican Congressman Carlos Curbelo at the annual Aussie Fest in New York City this last weekend. Corbello is a representative from Florida's 26th district. It's one of the bellwether races we're watching as part of a project known as Ground Game, and it's in the run-up to the crucial 2018 midterm elections. We talked with Corbello about everything from climate change to immigration reform, including what he saw last week in Florida when he toured one of the country's largest compounds for immigrant children. As traumatic as it has been for these young adolescents, the care that they're getting at that facility is something most Americans would be proud of. Stick around for a very special episode of Beyond the Bubble from Central Park in New York City, live from Fest with Representative Carlos Curbelo. Does it ever seem to you that President Trump has done more than any president in just 16 months? You can't let the critics get in the way of your dreams. When people are prepared to fight, there's nothing that we cannot do. We have a very different view of what America ought to look like. Our Republican friends better look out. So to all Americans, hear these words. You will never be ignored again. Hello, everybody. Daniel, we have the great honor of talking to a member of Congress who is a Republican. He is one of the shrinking number of moderates who is willing to work with the other side to do deals on everything from immigration to climate change. And he's also in one of the hottest races and most consequential races of 2018. Please welcome Congressman Carlos Curbelo. Thank you. How's it going? Thanks so much. So I thought, while we have a nice long list of questions for you, um, I thought that we would give you a chance first to talk about a visit you made yesterday to the facility in Florida, down in Homestead, where they are keeping some of the children who have been taken away from their parents after crossing the border illegally. Tell us about your visit and what you saw. So thank you. It's good to be here. And this is one of the hot issues in our country, and especially in uh, South Florida, because we do have a few of these uh, detention facilities. The one that I was able to visit uh, recently, it really kind of felt like a high school. It was 1,300 minors from the ages of 13 to 17 years of age. Of those 1,300, about 100 were minors who were separated from their parents at the border, a policy that I've condemned and that has thankfully been reversed for the time, and we want to do that legislatively. But it's important for people to know because they hear about these shelters, these detention facilities, and they think that all of the minors there are a product of this family separation policy when in fact most of the minors that are in these facilities are unaccompanied. They get to the border alone and they're assigned to these uh, facilities all over the country. I can tell you as terrible as the policy has been, the staff there treats uh, the children with great compassion 
There are nurses, there are psychologists, counselors, teachers teaching the, the adolescents English and all sorts of other subjects. So I was reminded of the fact, even in the context of this ugly policy that has caused so many Americans to speak up and to be angry, even in that context, I was reminded of the fact that we are, I believe, the most generous country in the world because here we are receiving thousands and thousands of minors that show up at the border, most of them without any adult. They're smuggled. Once they get to the border, the smugglers leave and just push them into the country. And American taxpayers are dedicating millions and millions of dollars every year to care for these uh, adolescents and to make sure they get placed with a suitable sponsor in the country. I could talk to you for hours about the visit yesterday, but I really want us to turn and talk about politics and sure. the 2018 election. And I want to start with two facts. Number one, you represent the most Democratic district held by a Republican this election cycle. I'm often reminded of that. Number two, this is not an easy year to be a House Republican up for re-election. So tell us, please, what is the thing that is going to protect you from the national headwinds against your party? I think in every district, people are going to go to the polls and ask themselves, is my representative representing my community, me, in a way that's sincere, that's honest? Is this someone who is just reflexively opposing everything that comes out of the White House or reflexively applauding everything that comes out of the White House? Or is this someone who's calling it honest and uh, really trying to pick and choose and find the best way forward uh, for the country? Without question, it's a difficult time in our politics. It is not always fun to serve in this environment. It's not always fun to cover you guys serving in this environment either. I can imagine. But every day, I try to call it honest, and I try to make the best decisions. And sometimes, oftentimes, recently, that means that I'm pushing back on the White House, trying to hold the president and his team accountable. But other times, like in my view, for example, when we worked on tax reform, that means having to engage the White House constructively and figuring out how to advance those kinds of policies in South Florida, something else that's very important. Your foreign policy is like a local issue in South Florida, Cuba, Venezuela, sure Colombia. Uh, we think this administration has done some good things in those areas, holding the dictators in Caracas more accountable than the previous administration did. So it really requires a discerning, thoughtful uh, style of representation. And that's why you know, I've, I've worked very hard to do that, and I think that that's what my community uh, wants to see. You've definitely been more critical than many Republicans in the House of Trump. And Are, are they scared of him, do you think? Certainly. <laughs> you know, the problem with both parties is uh, the dynamics of primary politics. And for Republicans these days, that means, you, know, you all had uh, uh, Mark Sanford as a guest here mm -hmm. earlier, uh, that means that if you are attacking the president, you're putting yourself at risk. And, and certainly, I think some Republicans are reticent to do so because they fear what the next uh, primary could mean. I, I, I think I'm a little different, and not because of you know, anything unique to me, but I think the next generation of members that are coming into the Congress, both parties included, have a different approach. And I get the sense that for most of us, the under 40 crowd, so to speak, re-election is not our only goal 
in Congress. We want to be effective, we want to be honest, and we're willing to take more risk. Let's talk a little bit more Trump, if you don't mind, because you were pretty quick to condemn the president's comments after his meeting with Vladimir Putin. Was this a turning point for this administration? It, it's, it's a real shame because in some senses, I think the administration had excelled at foreign policy. I'll give you an example that for me was very important. When I ran for the first time, the 2014 cycle, I started running in 2013, that's when um, Bashar al-Assad first was exposed for using chemical weapons and gassing children and innocent people to death. And even though it was very unpopular, uh, according to the polls at the time, as a candidate, I said the, the United States must respond. Uh, someone who's uh, a world leader recognized by the United Nations cannot gas people to death and the civilized world just look on with indifference almost. The Obama administration, I thought that was their low point, where they kind of dithered and then did nothing. You know, this, this administration came in, you know, the president, the first time uh, uh, Assad used chemical weapons, responded in a forceful way, did it again some months later. And I, I really thought that the United States had started uh, reclaiming its leadership role in the world and asserting itself and letting our allies know that they could count on us and our enemies know that that, that we would hold them accountable. And then enter this uh, Helsinki meeting, and um, I think all of that was lost in, in a matter of, you know, in the 20 minutes that the president uh, stood next to Putin and, and said the things he did and failed to say the things that he didn't say. That meeting only increased the talk, of, uh, particularly among Democrats, of impeachment. Do you think impeachment is something that should be a conversation at this point? I think we need sobriety. Look, Republicans went on, a, on an impeachment escapade in the 90s. Some could argue that technically it was the right thing to do because a, a crime may have been committed you know, when Clinton lied under oath. But impeachment is a tool that should only be used when absolutely necessary. And uh, I did say last year that obstruction of justice is an impeachable offense. And uh, if there's ever any serious accusation of that, that's something that obviously the, the Congress will have to take into account. But for a lot of my Democratic colleagues, I think they've become so radicalized that they view this as a real option today. And not only that, but they view it as a tool to reverse the result of the 2016 election, which obviously deeply frustrated them. So that's not what impeachment is, and I think to be advancing that idea is premature and irresponsible, as irresponsible as some Republican colleagues who are contemplating impeaching Rod Rosenstein. The point about 2016 is a good one. You've also been different from many of your colleagues in criticizing the NRA and, and being different on gun control, particularly this year. What do you make of this news that they may have been a conduit for Russian money during the election and the, their whole involvement in this spy affair? It's troubling. I don't think there's... Uh, you know, some conspiracy, and I, and I don't, you know, there isn't proof that uh, there was any kind of nefarious coordination uh, or collusion, since that's the word of the day, but <laughs> clearly some of these groups have become so radicalized that they are susceptible to falling into these kinds of traps. And uh, some people have become so radicalized that they fall for uh, this, this stunt that I forget his name, but Borat, the uh, Sa 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 <laughs> Sasha Baron Cohen. Jinx. I mean, yeah, that, that's evidence of the, um, the toxicity 
levels in our politics yeah. and how people are just kind of not thinking clearly. And, and you know, that, that, I think that's why the NRI fell into that trap. Let's talk about your work on Capitol Hill. You know, one of the most important issues to voters in Florida and, frankly, nationwide is climate change um, and how this country fails to or maybe will succeed in combating climate change and all its ancillary effects. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about what you're going to be doing on Monday? Yeah, so let me just say for us in South Florida, kind of like foreign policy, it's not a, an academic issue, this issue of climate change. It's not something that we need to start studying or debating. We see the real life effects of climate change in South Florida, sea level rise. Most of my constituents live at about sea level and near the sea, so th this is a real concern. Saltwater intrusion, the Everglades houses our drinking water supply, and as salt water creeps closer and closer to that, it obviously jeopardizes our ability to live in South Florida. So for us, it's a local issue. This is not a, uh, a philosophical or an ideological discussion. So on Monday, I'm going to file a bill that achieves a number of key priorities for our country. It invests over $700 billion in infrastructure. I remind everyone that I think uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump agreed on one issue during the 2016 election, and that was the importance of infrastructure investment. It's an 80% issue in our country. The bill imposes a fee on carbon. It recognizes that there is a cost to CO2 emissions, and it recognizes that cost and then puts the American consumer in control so that they can decide what they want the future to look like. It uh, deregulates, it suspends emissions regulation authority that the EPA has as long as this tax is in effect and as long as it's meeting its goals. For environmentalists, the models show that it beats Paris. We do better under this structure, under this paradigm than we would if we had stayed in the Paris Agreement and kept those commitments. So this is a broad, sweeping bill. It's an attempt to bring Republicans and Democrats together. Uh, in the process, we not only recognize the cost of carbon, but we also repeal the gas tax, a tax that's regressive, that disproportionately hurts lower and middle income Americans who can't afford Teslas and other energy efficient uh, vehicles. It disproportionately uh, affects those who live in rural areas too because they, they have to drive more. So we eliminate a regressive tax. We make sure that everyone in our country is contributing to infrastructure, including wealthier Americans who can drive electric vehicles and who may be plugging those into coal power plants. Now they're contributing as well. So at the very least, I know this legislation is going to make people think long and hard. There's some, like our friend Grover Norquist, who was just I here, was about to go there. who are going to be adamantly opposed to it no matter what. I understand that's how he is on most of these tax issues. But the bottom line is that Americans demand a solution for this issue of climate change. And I think we have found a way forward that promotes both economic growth and environmental protection simultaneously. You say the word carbon tax, most of your Republican colleagues go running for the hills screaming. So what's the Republican argument for fighting climate change? To get the conservatives on your side, what do you have to sell them on to make this work? I think they have to realize that uh, this is more of tax swap and tax reform than 
just a simple carbon tax Because you're appealing the gas tax. The, yeah. the White House has endorsed raising the gas tax. Yeah. A lot of Republicans on the Hill support raising the gas tax. The problem with that is that it is not a good long-term solution. Every day, vehicles get more efficient. A lot of vehicles will not fill up at the gas pump in the future. So that is a solution of the past. Let's instead you know, take this new solution that is a consumption tax that's broadly dispersed across the economy and let's use it to put American consumers in control, reduce CO2 emissions, save the planet, you know, uh, usher in the clean energy revolution. So I want to invite you to be really truthful and candid with us in this moment. Okay, because I feel like, I feel like we have a connection right now, you and me. <laughs> okay. And so I'm going to ask, your Republican colleagues on climate change, we know what they say publicly about it. Do they really believe that? Do they really believe that this is not a thing created by humans? Most Republicans acknowledge, either publicly or privately, that human beings are at least in part responsible for changes in the climate, namely rising global temperatures, rising seawater temperatures, and rising sea levels. Because when you were talking about what you're going to do on Monday, you, you had a phrase in there, you said you're going to bring Republicans into this conversation. You know, at, at the very least, get people thinking mm -hmm. hard about it. But the very least might be all that happens with that proposal because of the public positioning by Republicans on this issue. Change in Congress happens gradually, but think about where we were in 2016. We just had a vote on a carbon tax resolution. Some colleagues brought it to the floor again. They've done it every Congress, basically rejecting the idea of carbon pricing always that resolution received unanimous Republican support. This time, we got seven Republicans, six voted against it, one uh, voted present. We are starting to see things change. Is it changing as, as rapidly as I would like to see? Absolutely not, but we now have 43 Republicans in the House who have joined the Climate Solutions Caucus. That means that they are publicly acknowledging that there's an issue with the climate, that human beings are responsible for it, and that Congress has a role. Now, a lot of people say, well, some of these members still aren't voting the right way, as I would characterize it. But they are putting their name to something, and they are providing the media and their constituents with a tool by which to hold them accountable and ask them, hey, you're in this caucus, you've recognized that you care about the environment, that we have this climate change phenomenon, what are you doing about it? Why are you voting this way or that? So this is all useful. It's movement in the right direction. And as John Boehner reminded us for the last time on his way out, change in Congress takes time. You have to be patient. As long as we're moving in the right direction, getting closer to the goal every time, uh, I think that's something to celebrate. I remind everyone our founders designed a system that is not intended to act swiftly. It really takes time to build consensus and make change. But do you have time before your city's underwater? That, that's a good question. <laughs> and, that, and, 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 <laughs> and that's why we're working night and day to get more and more Republicans to a healthy place and to get Democrats to work with us as well. Because what mm -hmm. tends to happen on a lot of these issues, as Republicans move closer to the middle, Democrats are moving further to the left, 
they have primary pressures too. Sometimes they also don't want Republicans to be a part of any kind of solution that they perceive would be good for Republicans politically. I just experienced that on immigration. Uh, so it's difficult, it's frustrating, but we have to keep trying. So let's talk about that a little bit. I'm glad you said the word, immigration. I was, I was having dinner with one of your political rivals on Wednesday in the design district in Miami. And he said, you know, Carlos gets credit as a Republican for admitting that the earth revolves around the sun, and that's not fair. And another one of your Democratic rivals said on the phone to me on Thursday morning that, you know what, he goes out there and he says that he can bridge the gap between Republicans and Democrats, but look at immigration, he hasn't done it. So what good does it do to be in the middle and say, I can bridge the gap when nobody wants to come to your party? So think about what we did on immigration. If uh, two months ago, I would have told you on this stage, in a few weeks, House Republican leaders are gonna bring a bill to the floor that includes a uh, path to citizenship for two million young immigrants brought to the country as children, beyond the 700,000 currently enrolled in the DACA program, another 1.3 million that have no protections whatsoever, that is gonna end the policy of, of child separation permanently and, and, and not allow any administration ever do it in the future, that also invests in border security and, uh, and reforms asylum laws, you would have said, no way, very unlikely, House Republican leaders will never bring that to the floor. Well, they did because we forced them to. And not only did they bring it to the floor, every House Republican leader voted for this bill, okay, something that's been decried as amnesty by, by people on, uh, I hate to even call it the far right because it's just demagogues. And not only did every Republican leader vote for it, but a majority of House Republicans, the famous majority of the majority rule or Hastert rule, now has been dispensed with on the issue of whether young immigrants who were brought to this country as children through no fault of their own uh, can, can have a future in this country. Not just a future, but fully, be fully integrated into the country. Now, my Democratic colleagues have been fighting for dreamers for 15 years, and I've always admired them for it, and I've worked uh, uh, and stood next to them on the issue. When it came time to vote, they didn't deliver a single vote for these young immigrants, having had the opportunity to do so, knowing that if this bill passed the House, it would have gone to the Senate, had gotten a bipartisan car wash, and would have come back looking very differently. And I will tell you that at least some of those Democrats didn't vote for the bill because they don't want to solve this issue. They want to use it in November, as they have done for every even-numbered year for the last 10 years. So what's the status of your relationship with the Democratic colleagues? You tried at one point to join the Hispanic caucus. It didn't go so well. But Yeah, uh, so I applied. I, I, I don't know if I look it, but I'm Hispanic. I come from a uh, Cuban-American family. My daughters are here. We speak in Spanish. I mean, we're just really proud of our, of our roots. My wife is also Hispanic. And I applied to join the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, a caucus that is for Hispanics who serve in Congress, and a caucus that is bipartisan according to their own bylaws. And I was rejected from join, joining the caucus because they said that uh, I didn't share their values. So that's how toxic our politics are today. A, a Hispanic is banned from joining an organization for Hispanics who serve in Congress. So is it as bad behind the scenes, meeting informally, you know, as it appears to be in public and on TV? 
No. Is it substantive or is it just optics? No. There are people who are very difficult and just kind of take pride in excluding others and in and in dividing. anyone you want to name in that category? <laughs> uh, I have. You can you can look at the record, especially in the wake of of not being allowed to join the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. By the way, that evening I was honored at the Kennedy School of Government for my work on climate change. So I'm, I'm apparently I'm good enough for the Kennedy family, but not <laughs> for the uh, Congressional Hispanic Caucus. But anyway, uh, it. Most of us get along very well and have at least cordial relationships. Uh, there are some individuals on both sides that are just kind of dedicated to sowing distrust, anger, and division in the Congress, and it's a shame. Okay, so on that point and as we wrap up, I want to give you one of the most interesting quotes from a story that is coming out about you in the Miami Herald and in Aussie um, in the first week of August. It is from a Democratic donor who also gives money to you, Ira Leesfield. Ira says this, I'm a Democrat, but I want to leave some rational people in the Republican Party to talk to other Republicans, and he does that. So Carlos, what happens in this period of extreme and really intense tribalism in our politics if the few remaining pragmatists and moderates are all defeated in November? It'll just make things worse. And what I tell people is we only have two parties in this country, and we, we need both of them to be viable and to be able to appeal to a majority of Americans. And the problem that we have in our country, you know, Madison always feared this, you know, the rise of factions, and he said, well, if we have factions, then we should have many of them because then they kind of fight each other and everything works out. Increasingly, we only have two factions as both parties become more and more homogeneous. And what we're trying to do in the Congress through vehicles like the Climate Solutions Caucus, like the uh, Problem Solvers Caucus, is build a new faction that can hold both parties accountable. And that faction would be bipartisan in nature. And I do think, if, if not me, you certainly need members like me in Congress that are willing to partake in that third-way faction that I think is critical to saving this democracy because without question things um, are devolving every day and I see it in the Congress, I see it in the public, I see it when I read some of my Facebook page comments and uh, I think we need more and more people who are willing to be criticized by people on both sides and I tell people what most prepared me for service in Congress was being a high school basketball referee. <laughs> I knew that if people on both sides were yelling, I was probably, I was either doing a, a really terrible job or <laughs> I was doing a decent job because I was calling it honest and that will always make someone uncomfortable. And I, I really, well, I'm grateful to Ira for that quote. And I do think we need people with that disposition in both parties in the Congress if we are to start healing our nation's politics. Is that a generational thing? Are younger members closer to you in age? Yes, I think that the rise of the millennial generation in the Congress is going to help turn the page on this ugly chapter in our nation's politics. And I hope that our baby boomer colleagues realize that they are at risk of leaving behind an ugly political legacy. Are you telling me I have to start liking millennials? You better. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's the only way forward. If everybody could join me in thanking Carlos Thank Cabello for joining us. Nice, nice.
Everybody tweet hashtag OzzyFest2018 and enjoy the rest of the show. Thank you to producer Jordan Marie Smith, the Aussie Fest and E2K production team, and thank you, our listeners. We want to hear from you, so please send your questions and your comments to btb at mcclatchy.com. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground states, and we might even ask you to call into the show. And check us out on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. We want to say thank you to everyone who's left us a review or a rating. Talk to you next week.